Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. Up until now, the podcast has been mostly me talking to other people, and today we're going to mix it up. Today, we're going to have the first of what we're going to call a Dyad Research Roundtable, and that is going to be opportunities for you to hear from other members of our research team. We've got a lot of folks that work with Dyad who are engaged into this research in brotherhood, sisterhood, hazing, chapter culture, and today I'm excited to welcome the two core members of the Dyad Research Team to the podcast Dr. Josh Schutz, who is my partner and is the Chief Research Officer of Dyad Strategies, as well as soon-to-be Dr. Sarah Cohen, who is our Director of Education and Programming. Uh, And we're just going to spend some time today talking about the things that we research, provide some context around some things that we research, uh, and help you understand some of the things that we've learned uh, as we have engaged in this work over the last few years. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Josh and Sarah, uh, and we'll touch base uh, a little bit at the end. Enjoy. All right, Josh and Sarah, welcome for the first time, the first of many to the uh, Dyad podcast. How are y'all doing? Doing great. How about you, Gentry? I am. I'm well. I was a little upset last night when I heard that John Prine was sick from COVID-19. I, I did not handle that well. Um, I'm still not handling it well, but um, but I'll be okay. By the time this airs, I hope John is is much better. I'm still uh, I'm I'm well personally, but still mourning the loss of Toby or of uh, Joe Diffie. I almost I almost put Toby Keith in the COVID bin, but Joe Diffie. <laughs> we we could be so lucky to have lost Toby Keith instead of Joe Diffie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I will say, prop me up beside the jukebox is in my top five go to karaoke. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I know that's why I'm that's why I'm particularly upset today. And, 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 and John Deere Green is a work of genius, and I will fight anyone who disagrees. I, I, I'm mourning the loss of Joe Diffie as well. As the, this, the day started with learning of Joe Diffie's passing, and it ended with learning that John Prine is fighting for his life. So it was a, it was a rough day. Well, I'm, I'm glad you all are staying safe. Uh, you know, we meet in weird times, but excited for our first Dyad Research Roundtable And as our listeners know, every three or four episodes, you know, three or four times a year, we will pull various members of our Dyad research team together just to talk about the work that we're doing, to talk about what we're learning, to talk about the the research and the the things that we're seeing it connected to out there in the field. So excited for you all to be here. Uh, Since for both of you, this is your first episode and, and folks are you know, know who you are, but don't necessarily know that much about you. Uh, Josh, Sarah, why don't you all go ahead and, and introduce yourself to, to the listeners, just a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be doing this work. Sure, I'll go first. So my name is Sarah Cohen. Professionally, I'm the director for Fraternity and Story Life up at Butler University in Indianapolis. Prior to that, I spent about five years in Bloomington at Indiana University doing primarily work with organizations that were going through the conduct process. So extensive kind of conduct background. And then I also spent three years working for my national headquarters. I'm a member of Delta Zeta. And so I was a leadership consultant and also stayed on staff for an extra year 
and do some volunteer work still with them. Actually, a couple weeks ago, did the uh, President's Academy facilitation. So still relatively plugged in with my national headquarters and have been working in fraternity and sorority life for this will be my 10th year now, uh, coming up on that big milestone 10 year. Going to get that, uh, gonna get that uh, what do you get at, at AFA for your 10 years? Is it just a certificate? Oh, I don't know. Do you get a, <laughs> yeah, probably. Do you get a gold medallion or anything? I, I think, think it's just a Yeah, I think so. I think you get to wear it the whole conference, almost like a, one of those green jackets from the PGA Tour. Um <laughs> <laughs> and then met Gentry and Josh when I was a graduate student down at the University of West Florida. So, Josh, I'll, I'll let you give your little background. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Josh Schutz, I, uh, I worked professionally for about a decade um, in fraternity and sorority affairs where I was uh, – I'd worked my way up from kind of entry-level coordinator um, all the way up to – assistant dean and director of Greek life at my alma mater, Southern Miss. Um, I worked at four schools, a combination of public and private, mostly throughout the South and out to Texas. Um, my undergraduate degree is in business, uh, business marketing, and, and I got a master's, obviously, in student affairs, the pretty common one to get uh, for folks that do work in our field. Um, and then I started pursuing a, uh, a PhD at Southern Miss when I went back to work there, uh, which is really kind of how Gentry and I first crossed paths as uh, researchers, I would say. We've been friends for some time, obviously, and um, uh, when we were both directing uh, offices of Greek life, and, and Gentry, I think you were finishing your doctorate at the time, or you had just finished it, and I was in process looking for things to think about, and you know, we got to, we got to chatting at, I think, maybe AFA St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. And uh, yeah, and the idea about uh, folks kind of changing the game in terms of new member ed and whether that would, you know, would that have an impact on the experience folks are having, uh, which we distilled down to what would it affect in this case, brotherhood. And, and then the, the questions that, that stem from that, right? Like what is brotherhood and how would you even, you know, try to conceptualize and measure and quantify and qualify it. So that's kind of how I came on board. And, uh, I actually switched my doctorate from a higher ed admin to uh, research evaluation and statistics. Uh, so now, um, for professionally for a little while longer, uh, I work uh, in our career development office at UWF. I run the quality enhancement plan, which is kind of accreditation related um, for SACS, the OC. And I also uh, serve as a research associate in their College of Education. And so I teach a lot of doctoral and master's programs, uh, assessment, evaluation, stats kind of courses. So two Josh Shute stories very quickly. My very first AFA, I didn't go to AFA as a grad student. Uh, for whatever reason, our, the folks in our office didn't do AFA, and I was never encouraged to go to AFA, so I didn't know anything at all about AFA until I had my first professional job, which was director of Greek life at MTSU. And I worked with uh, the lovely Carrie Smith, now Carrie Ewell, mm. uh, was our coordinator there, and she had been to IFI that summer. And so we go to AFA, which is in Atlanta. This is AFA 2005. And I don't know a soul. I don't know anybody. And Carrie, we get to the hotel and Carrie's like, hey, I want to go see, I want to go up to my friend's room and some of my friends from IFI this summer. And her friend's room was Cassie Kissinger, but the other two people in the room were Joshua Schutz and Ryan O'Rourke of, of AFLV fame. So the very first yeah. two people that I met at my very first AFA were Josh Schutz and Ryan O'Rourke. Uh, and then fast that was forward. my first AFA as well. Yeah, it was a good time. And so then fast forward, like, yes, yeah, five, six years. I forget. AFA St. Louis would have been, what, 2000? 
10 maybe. Uh, yeah. I'd have to go back and look. But, yeah, I'd, I'd had the idea for this very r- r- roughly, loosely put together harebrained concept of, of these different schema of brotherhood and, and why they might matter. And, you know, I think Josh and I maybe skipped out on some sessions and went to a bar down the street. And I was like, hey, man, I want to <laughs> I want to run some stuff by you. And, and there began a – a nice, uh, a nice relationship and a nice research partnership. And then Sarah had the great misfortune of having to be one of my <laughs> students when I taught at West Florida. I taught her student development theory, so she knows Kohlberg better than most. <laughs> and uh, as Josh and I were finishing the brotherhood research and were approached about doing the sisterhood research, uh, it was while Sarah was in our program and, you know, we knew Sarah's background and Sarah was really, you know, heads and shoulders above a lot of her peers there at West Florida. And that's not meant to disparage them, but just to speak of the quality of students she was and was really interested in doing research. And so when Josh and I got the funding and the support from Zeta Tau Alpha and Gamma Phi Beta to begin our research into sisterhood, uh, we asked Sarah if she wanted to join in and, uh, Thankfully for us, she said yes. So she's been part of the, the research team since then. Uh, Josh, let's start with, with Brotherhood. You know, I want to make folks aware of kind of the underlying things that we measure and, and the, the basis of our research, because we're going to be talking about our research a lot in this podcast, the things we study, the things we measure, why they matter. And, and I thought today would be a good opportunity for us to just build some baseline knowledge of those things. And so our, our research revolves around these four schema of brotherhood. Uh, walk folks through those four schema and, and, and kind of the, the genesis of those and, and what we've learned about those in the now six, seven years that we've been studying fraternal brotherhood. Sure. I'll give you, before I tell you a little bit about, I guess, what we found and what those are, I'll just say a brief thing about, I guess, how we studied it, because I think that that's, that's important to understand where they came from and how the conceptualizations and ultimately the measurement tool, right, come together. So um, uh, you and I are both, right, mixed methodologists. We, we, uh, we have our kind of preferred, I would guess, method, but uh, the real fun happens when you start mixing them together. And um, so when we when we attacked this project, we used this sequential design where essentially we started off really qualitatively asking a lot of open-ended questions and follow-ups, uh, focus group and interview style. And then, uh, you know, couple that with theory and literature, right? We read everything we could about the nature of brotherhood, anything that folks would talk about brotherhood. Which admittedly uh, was out, not much. It was not much. It was, it was a lot of history manuals, right? I mean, he had Baird's history of uh, American college fraternity. There was um, Surrett's book on the history of white college fraternities, several books. Kimbrough, I think, wrote a book about Black Greek 101. So, I mean, but, you know, you could learn a little bit from those, but a lot of them admittedly were kind of historical accounts. Um, and, uh, And so, you know, when we looked at what does the literature tell us? What are guys telling us? We developed basically a scheme of questions that emanated from the very first, most simplest one, which is what is brotherhood? Uh, and then just let them talk, right? And, uh, and build, kind of build from there. Um, we ended up kind of coding those things thematically, um, using some of the direct quotes themselves to kind of reflect back the items. So, you know, if you're thinking about it, if if you said it or you might have heard, of, uh, you know, a fraternity brother say it, it's probably more like would resonate with you as kind of a valid statement about that, right? Because if you didn't think it, somebody else probably said it that 
that would that would trigger you to understand oh yeah that's that that's that aspect of this nebulous thing we call brotherhood so we went through this pilot testing a kind of nationwide study turned the items um, into Likert scale kind of agree versus disagree responses mm -hmm. and then I won't bore everyone with all the the guts behind the statistics but you essentially run factor analysis um, and you look for which items tend to cluster together the best and uh, those like items represent an underlying concept or construct uh, in this case we thought of them more as schema uh, and so because they're all interrelated right they're all correlated and associated in the same direction with each other meaning they all are distinct parts of a larger whole we did a lot of piloting with our students. Uh, they, they took a lot of surveys at Alabama and Southern Miss back in the day. And when we got tired of surveying them, we, we had a few good friends. Shout out to Bo Mantooth, who, who was at Auburn at the time. We surveyed the Auburn students a good bit during that time period as well, if I recall. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then obviously parsimony is the goal, right? So you usually write way more items than you're going to need. You use a lot of items and find the best ones. So, um, you know, kind of try to operate under the best scale development advice, which someone gave me back in my doc program. Uh, the magic number for items on a scale is seven plus or minus two. So, uh, you know, it could, they typically, the best ones range from five to nine items. So we'd write, you know, obviously more than that and then pick the best. And that gets it down to the best, you know, most fundamental concept that shortens the survey in a way that you can measure several things uh, without taxing the student too bad. And, and if, for those of you who've never done factor analysis, uh, this isn't just something on SPSS where you point and click and it tells you what to do. You literally have to go through and add and remove each item. You do your initial analysis and it tells you where your model is, but then you have to start pulling items out that don't meet certain criteria and, and you literally spend hours on this. I remember I, I had just moved to Pensacola when we were at this point. I drove over to Hattiesburg the weekend that we were like, all right, we've got our data. We've got enough to do our factor analysis. Josh was still in Hattiesburg. I drove over. We spent all weekend on that model. We literally yeah. with like one break to go out to the bar and have a couple of beers. We sat in your office in your house in Hattiesburg and ran yep. factor analysis for probably a total of 12 hours over the course of a weekend. That's, that's probably true. And that's the, you know, it's really two things. Every time you remove an item, the model changes, right? You know, and you've got to go back and compare, did it get better? Did it get worse? You know, in a perfect world, data come out really clean. You know, when you learn how to do factor analysis in a constructed classroom setting, typically the data are pretty clean. So you don't go through the hours and hours and hours of process because the solution kind of presents itself with, with limited tweaks, right? To learn basically how to do it. But data in the real world are messy, right? And so we had to deal with what we had and, uh, and just try to make the best of it. So we've learned a lot, right? And I think it made us better item writers. There were mo sometimes, you know, we didn't write enough. And, and you, you write so many bad items early on that you end up needing to write more that get down in another, you know, take you down in another kind of direction and then re-administer a second wave or even a third wave of a survey. I think now we've gotten a lot better as we replicated the process with, you know, sisterhood, um, which Sarah will talk about, I know, in a, in a few minutes uh, with the hazing motivation scale and others. I think we've gotten a lot better at item writing, but it is, it's a skill. So, so yeah, so that's the, that's the 30,000 foot view of the process we used, right? So, so ultimately, what did we find? Um, 
we found that there were essentially four distinct schema of brotherhood. And, and again, these are all interrelated with each other in the same direction. So theoretically, as one increases, the other may naturally tend to increase, although they are certainly very distinct from one another. So kind of the first um, schema of brotherhood we call solidarity. It's this general notion of support, unity, and togetherness. Um, the second schema is the shared social experience, which is essentially the, the fun aspect. Most of our fraternities um, and sororities uh, in the college level are social fraternities. Uh, I'm using air quotes on that, but, uh, but it is, I mean, it is designed that there is a fun aspect to it. So this dimension captures that fun nature. Um, the third uh, schema is the schema of belonging. Um, these uh, that would relate to the concept of deep meaningful relationships uh, a, a connection to like a home away from home or a family beyond your family uh, and the fourth schema that we found was the schema of accountability which is essentially um, personal accountability and group accountability it has both dimensions in it um, to the standards and expectations of what it means to be a member of this fraternity uh, and so uh, we, we we got we found four very clear schema that emerged quite nicely um, that we also you know um, looked at this notion of values congruence uh, you'll recall and I know you probably have some thoughts about this gentry uh, when we started this research, we were mired deep in the concept of live your values, values congruence. There was a ton of programming yep. at the national level, at uh, NICUIFI type programming, even at the campus level about understanding and articulating your values and, and living those and all of that kind of stuff. We were blinded so, by values. <laughs> we were. We talked a lot about it. It was it was a lot of live your values moments. I was calling before we ran the analysis. I know where you're going with this. Before we ran that initial factor analysis, the third schema, I was not calling it belonging. Uh, right. I was calling it um, brotherhood based on shared values. But it was right. this idea that our values bring us together as a group. So we I have meaning and connection with my brothers because of our shared values. What we found when we did the analysis was that it was about the connection and the relationships and the values piece of it. The items that were really values laden, values heavy didn't hold up in the factor analysis at all. And Josh was actually the one who suggested, Hey, maybe this is just belonging and connection and has nothing at all to do uh, well, I won't say nothing at all to do with shared values, but it, it's it's about a lot more than just values. It's about the depth and meaning of the personal connection. Right, right. And, and I think, um, you know, so it goes as far as maybe like interests right. that folks would have, but I don't know that it went as far as values. And, and to be fair, right, for the, for the listeners, we wrote items that specifically talked about shared values and sharing common values with your brothers and all that. So, I mean, it was explicitly written into the, the, the draft set of items that were presented and, and, you know, they just, they didn't hold up. They didn't, they didn't, um, they, they neither affixed themselves to one of the existing and established constructs that yep. emerged, nor did they stand apart as a unique and distinct thing, this concept of values congruence as a fifth 
kind of thing. And, and we'll get to, that's a prelude to what Sarah will tell us about values congruence with the women because they do, in fact, show up there. I, I would probably throw out maybe one caveat about the notion of values congruence in the, in the concept of brotherhood. I think from the data that we have captured over the years that we've been doing this, since 2014, really, um, well, it hasn't become a distinct schema of brotherhood. It may exist in a couple of places. It may exist in NIC groups that have a cultural affiliation or mm -hmm. really a cultural affiliation based group in general. So yep. uh, because I think that you get to that common values and purpose when you start looking at um, taking care to preserve your culture, uplifting your um, the, the folks of your culture and your community, which we find very salient in NPHC and NALFO, uh, NMGC and NAPA type groups. But I also think you can see it in an NIC group when you look at perhaps some of like the Jewish um, identity uh, related groups, right? When we, we did a few campus projects where they really talked about the salience of their values as Jewish men, for example, or Jew. Uh, and, and so I think it shows up there, but that's nuanced, right? That's a, right. it's, it's nuanced and it's not, it, it was beyond the original way that we studied it. The other place I think we saw it um, is it exists in perhaps new chapters. Mm -hmm. We did some uh, campus work where there were, uh, less than five-year-old chapters that had, you know, they still had the, the new car smell. Uh, they were, you know, <laughs> recently established. They were given the ritual the right way. They were taught about values directly from the source, being the headquarters who established them. And they had a common kind of purpose or identity or value set around being new and different and the alternative to kind of everything else. I think what we found is we've tagged those chapters and watched them over time in some of the longitudinal projects, one specifically comes immediately to mind, is that regression to the mean is a real thing. And yeah. that salience around being new, alternative, unique, and different only lasts for so long. And then it's, and then they become the Joneses. They become like the homogenous uh, group within the larger structure of the community. So, you know, it, I'm not gonna completely rule it out. It certainly exists, but it, in our initial study of it, we only, I think, really found it in a couple of those instances. The, the other thing that's interesting to me about values, Josh, it, 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 it showed up weirdly in belonging, right? So we thought belonging was shared values. It wasn't. It was something else. The other place where values really didn't hold up was in the notion, if you'll recall, of accountability. When we wrote yep. all the items related to accountability, we used three words fairly interchangeably. That's right. Uh, we used the word standards. We use the word expectations and we use the word values. And so the right. statements would be things like, you know, brothers should be held accountable if they violate the chapter's expectations. And uh, it's important that brothers, you know, exhibit uh, congruence with our values, right? So we just all these items that relate to standards, expectations, and values. And, and when we ran the factor analysis, the most amazing thing happened any item that used the word values didn't load up on the factor the way standards and expectations did. Standards and expectations really stood clearly that, that, that fraternity members thought about those things through the lens of accountability, that when someone violates our standards or they, they violate our expectations, that's a problem that merits accountability. But the values words didn't load up. And, and so we were like, well, again, we were like, maybe this is a separate thing. Maybe right. th this values thing is something totally different. 
So we tried to force them into their own fifth factor and they didn't even connect with one another, right? And this was when we really began understanding some of the problems with the values movement because that word means so many things to so many people. And when you tell a fraternity member, live your values, he doesn't necessarily know what you mean. Do you mean my values as a person? I value drinking beer and going to the bars and chasing women. So if I'm doing that on Friday night, am I not living my values? It's a, it's that concept just does not land with the fraternity members that we studied. And so as a result, the final accountability items in the, in the survey don't mention the word values at all. It's all about standards and expectations. It was pretty fascinating at the time. That's right. I wrote a, uh, I think I remember writing a perspectives article about, the, the, the values movement and the problematic nature of the fact that individuals and chapters mm-hmm. might have a different conceptualization of shared values based on, and they, they, they could be negative, right? They could share uh, negative values exactly like you talked about. I just want to have a good time and, you know, live a hedonist lifestyle, then fine, <laughs> I'm pretty damn value congruent, right? Like, but that's clearly not the values that everybody was talking about uh, getting students to align to or to espouse. And, you know, even the, the fact that the accountability piece had a personal dimension. So like the I believe, you know, in terms of how the, the, the holding yourself to the high standards, even values were not thought about from an accountability standpoint personally. You know, it's, you might make the argument, well, maybe the chapter hasn't figured out how to talk about them, let alone hold their members accountable to them. So it's harder to believe that there's a group accountability to some set of values. But you would at least think with all the work that folks had been doing on, you know, accountability that you'd at least be able to think about your personal values and whether or not you would hold yourself to being that kind of a person. And that right. didn't that didn't even show up in the personal accountability factor analysis. So, so Sarah, walk us through um, on the sisterhood side, how is sisterhood similar? How is it different? Kind of walk us through what we know. Sure. So there's definitely some similarities and a couple interesting differences that we found. We started this part of the process at a national convention out in Seattle. I think it was the three of us were out there for a weekend and did quite a few focus groups. And then I remember we spent, you know, a couple hours that uh, Saturday night and then again on Sunday morning trying to write items and then testing them kind of on site with those same groups of women to kind of learn how, how well those items matched up with what we had heard in the focus groups the day before. And so what we, we found that belonging and accountability, those two, those things that Josh just explained also exist as components of sisterhood. Shared social experience is still present with the women's organizations. However, sometimes the women talk about it more about kind of the external presentation. So think about, you know, the chapter Instagram posts and the recruitment videos and the way someone's membership might make them look externally to others. And women who joined their particular chapter primarily because of its place in the social hierarchy on campus are more likely to think of sisterhood along those lines of that shared social experience. So it's still present, but it does present sometimes a little bit differently. And then the the two key differences that we learned about, um, women's organizations have a different play on that concept of solidarity that Josh talked about. And we termed it during our research, the idea of support and encouragement, which extends beyond just the organizational context and more into the day-to-day lives of your sisters. 
So it's the idea that you would show up for your sisters regardless of if they're in your close friend group. It's not necessarily that you only show up for your best friends, but even if you know you didn't know someone and you weren't close with them, you would still be there to support them, uplift them, show that you care about them in a meaningful way. Uh, and it's one of those things that you, you wouldn't worry about having too much of it. Whereas with the solidarity component Josh was talking about, sometimes when it, it gets to in a higher level, you might start to worry about some hazing behaviors, but support and encouragement doesn't have that threshold of it getting to a point where it might be problematic. And then the, the last difference was something that we termed the idea of common purpose, which is essentially the ability to see the sisterhood as something much bigger than yourself. So women would describe the sisterhood as something that was transcending the individual and even the chapter. Uh, one student that we worked with specifically talked about uh, this notion by explaining that the sisterhood was a process of transcending from a selfish sisterhood to a selfless sisterhood. Meaning that you know, when you're a new member, it's all about what you get out of the experience and what it provides you. And so uh, one of the things that was pointed out was this idea that, you know, when you're a new member, it's all about the gifts that you get from your big and the way in which you're kind of showered upon praise and accolades and everyone's so excited that you're there and you're kind of the, the fresh new face of the sisterhood. And then as you get older in the organization, it should become less about your personal gain and more about the greater good. So more about how you're giving back, how you're investing in the younger members, how you're seeing that it's not just about your time in these four years in the chapter, but it's about something much greater and your organization exists across the country and you've got this huge alumni base. A lot of women who would talk about this idea would also often reference their, uh, their experiences with the national organization in terms of attendance at leadership conferences or their relationships with their alumni or even women who had been in the organization that they might not have known but had built a relationship with over their time in yeah. the chapter. Uh, and even so far as to say, you know, I might be a Delta Zeta, but I can understand that a Gamma Phi Beta alum holds this same notion of what it means to be a, a woman as a part of a sisterhood. So similar to what Josh was talking about in that values notion, it's that bigger than oneself concept. And so that was, I think, one that I still find to be very unique in our women's organizations, that they all can kind of communicate this difference, but sometimes you won't see it as salient in the younger members. It does kind of sometimes present a little bit stronger as they go throughout their membership. And some so, people never get there, right? Yeah. That's the yeah. other thing about this. Like some women transcend and some don't. I remember that focus group, and that's the beauty of qualitative research is sometimes – students say something so profound that it just kind of knocks your head for a spin. Right. And she started talking about this transcendence from selfishness to selflessness. And it was just like, wow, she gets mm -hmm. it right. Like she really yep. understands this. And, but then it was obvious that not everyone thinks about it in that way that, that some people get there and, and, and other people don't get there. Uh, we'll have an upcoming podcast with Lawrence and Josh, you referenced this a second ago that, that culturally based men's group might have that dimension of common purpose that we don't see in the historically white groups. And Lawrence and I talk about that and he agrees that that, that is definitely a thing and it, and it traces back mm -hmm. to their history and why they were founded, right? Mm -hmm. They were founded to be very service minded 
to provide service in their communities. And there's the shared identity of being part of a marginalized population, which Sarah, we also see, and you referenced this, for women, they talk about the importance of being part of a group of women, right? The, the fact that it's a group of women, the gendered aspect of this definitely plays into that notion of common purpose. The way Josh and I never really saw it play out when we were talking to the men. Guys didn't talk about fraternity through the lens of being a male. They certainly didn't talk about it through the lens of being a white male. And so you see that common purpose not only relate back to the history and the founding of why we are here, but also through the aspect of being part of a marginalized identity that is working together to make things better for the collective us. And, and I think that's the two things that we see that, that you don't necessarily have in particularly white men's fraternities, but you would see in an NPHC or MGC, even men's organization, because there's that shared identity from, from, from being part of a, a, a population that's historically been oppressed. Sure. Josh, so, is there anything you want to, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, I would say uh, you covered it wonderfully, Sarah, absolutely. So for both of you, and, and, and this is something I just want to chat about, Brotherhood and sisterhood, what we've learned over the years is that in and of themselves, those, those four measures of brotherhood, those five measures of sisterhood by themselves are really powerful predictors of chapter culture, right? If, if I can look at those four or five data points, mm-hmm. and I've been doing this long enough that it's fun, you know, when I go into a campus just to look at that data and play the guessing game, looking just at those four or five data points, I can tell you a lot about what's going on in a chapter. So from your perspective, as you think about how brotherhood, how sisterhood, I don't want to say predicts, but certainly is strongly related to chapter culture, what are some of the things that, that we've learned over the last few years as it relates to brotherhood and sisterhood's connection with, with culture generally? So I would say, um, you know, chapter culture is is a really interesting thing to look at and it's it's really inherently linked to notions of one's belief and their behavior right so like i uh, remember going up through the my my coursework as an undergrad and learning about you know kurt lewin and very famous social psychologist i think in the 50s who talked about uh behavior as a function of a person and their environment likely the interaction of the two of those and so when we think about like um, how these things are related, then, you know, what we do in the chapter, right? So the kinds of activities and events, the, the way that brotherhood manifests is really a piece of who we are as individuals, what we believe, and the culture or the environment that, that we're placed in, knowing that sometimes those things are influenced by external factors like the campus culture, Right, those the, uh, certain different campuses have, and I'm and I'm sure you'll talk to McCready at some point, uh, where he'll tell you all about um, campus level differences and region level differences. I mean that those do play into culture. So um, I think you know when also I, I think about what we've seen from learning. Uh, sometimes too much of something is a bad thing. Uh, sometimes not enough of something is also a bad thing, and I think we found that, particularly when it look when we look at at least in the brotherhood side, 
the, 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 the schema of social experience and solidarity seem to have almost kind of a Goldilocks zone, right? I mean, it, if you have an environment where, um, you know, solidarity is really high, we think about that like that's kind of a gang mentality culture. It's kind of, it's, it's probably wrought with groupthink and mind guards and folks that you just don't cross and very loud voices of a, of a very uh, small minority of individuals who try to really guide and direct the organization or the chapter to, to kind of their, their aspirations or their whims. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you see that, you see win at all cost mindsets, you see lying and cheating, uh, you know, kind of anything you can to protect the organization. And, and we, you know, that obviously connects to some, some ethics, right. And, and morals and values. There's a lot to really unpack there and high solidarity. I mean, high social experience cultures could tend to become more of a party type of a chapter, more of a, you know, they're a, a unidimensional. This thing is just supposed to be fun. We don't need all these rules. Why are we, you know, going to, to class and making good grades are not really important. We're just here to have fun for the time that we have. And, you know, you can obviously think really easily about how that can be problematic mm-hmm. in terms of sets of outcomes uh, that, that the chapter would, would be really fighting hard to overcome. Um, we've seen chapters where, you know, low accountability has existed, uh, particularly, you know, by itself, low accountability probably suggests some kind of, lack of leadership, right? I mean, nobody's, if nobody's holding anyone accountable, you have to totally self-lead. And uh, at the same time, when a lot of students are still learning the concepts of leadership. And so, you know, I think you might see ineffective chapter leadership in a low accountability. But imagine now when you pair low accountability with high social or high solidarity, uh, almost like the teeter-totter, right? Like, you know, you would talk about, as you have Gentry and, and Sarah, when y'all have, when have been on campuses and talked to students, that it's not a one or the other. You can have both. But without a you know, firm understanding of how all these things work together, low accountability chapters with high solidarity, I mean, that's, that's a recipe for groupthink and gang mentality because those few people end up being the mind guards and there's not really a culture of, folks resisting them, right, and challenging that process. A high social chapter with no accountability is just like, you know, reckless abandon to the party, right? I mean, it's kind of like the only accountability is did you pay your dues so we could have the party? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it has nothing to do with making grades or, you know, any of the kind of stuff that you should be doing as well to kind of enjoy the social benefits. Um, you know what, the, if you flip it on the, you know, so that, so that's kind of low accountability, but then I think we've even seen some instances, they're a little more few and far between, but you might find instances where accountability is really high and social experience or solidarity is low. Um, and imagine an environment like that, you'd think, well, I mean, a, a good degree of accountability, that'd be a really good thing, right? Well, yeah, but you also need the, the organization to have enough unity and bonding where people feel like they actually are with a close group of individuals who care about them, are concerned about them, will show up and support them, you know, and will have their back when they need it. I mean, you know, life isn't always roses as a college student. And you need, you need a tribe of people that are going to be there for you. And if you don't have enough solidarity, it's kind of just a loose confederation of friends. And uh, who, you know, not altogether different than some, you know, registered student organizations that maybe meet once a month and are are kind of thematic in nature. Uh, If if social isn't, if the organization isn't fun, you you know, so you're sitting in an an environment where there's a ton of rules and a, a ton of adherence to these standards and rules and probably everybody's getting called to, you know, 
to standards or, or you know, getting their chops busted for whatever, but the, the organization just isn't fun. And you can imagine that in those types of environments, low social, low solidarity, and high accountability, you're going to see you're going to see low commitment. You're going to see, you know, retention issues. People are going to quit. You know, if they, if they don't quit outright, by the time they become a junior, they're looking for the next best thing, which is an internship, a study abroad, early alum status as a senior. I mean, and, and that doesn't help the organization either. So it really is, I think I've really enjoyed uh, how you've talked about it as kind of a, uh, a mixing board, right? Like an equalizer. You've got yeah. to dial and adjust them consistently and all, and all the time because as you get new people in, the culture begins to shift. People inherit a culture. You know, those new members come into a culture that was, you know, that was established for them. That was what they recruited through that lens of that culture. But people aren't powerless to change culture. Uh, and so, you know, if you're not consistently taking a, a peek at it and looking at assessing where it is today and how it's been changing over time, you know, uh, you don't have, I guess, the best picture of what the mixing board looks like presently and, and where it could be improved. So I think I would probably conclude with if folks are sitting there thinking like, okay, I, I'm starting to understand these, these four concepts for brotherhood, five concepts for sisterhood, and I get like in a high-low environment, what, were, what would be the strengths of those things? What would be the weaknesses of those things? I think one of the most useful activities that, a, you know, that any chapter could do if they're really looking at how do we unpack the strengths of our culture and the opportunities for change in our, that exists within our, our chapter's culture would be kind of a mapping activity, right? It's uh, if you were to take four columns and on each column is one of those schema of brotherhood or five columns for one of the schema of sisterhood and then sat down and, and wrote as a chapter all of the things that you do, the activities, experiences, all of that, that is, uh, you know, and, and map them to the to the aspect of brotherhood or sisterhood that it is primarily designed to influence. So the party, right? So we have, we have mixers and swaps, uh, you know, probably uh, theme parties, date parties, whatever. Those would align perfectly to the shared social experience, right? But you could literally, you know, look at every single unique thing that you do, and that would give you a pretty good kind of overview of how balanced the chapter's uh, brotherhood or sisterhood profile is uh, is the line for social all the way down to a second page if you were doing it on a flip chart whereas the stuff for accountability there might be only one or two things there well that's a visual representation of maybe an area for growth you're spending a lot of time and activity and energy in some aspects of your culture perhaps at the detriment to others so I'd offer that out there for folks who are just thinking about like how do I make sense of this and look at planning and goal setting and, okay, I, I realize there's some problems in our culture that I, I as a leader want to take that on and want to try to push my brothers or sisters. That's a simple activity that folks can do that I think will give them an early picture. I would add in, in relation to culture, I think one of the things that's always really interesting for me is when I get to see a group's data before I've gone in to present to them, uh, and you can normally make some guesses about how the presentation's going to go just purely based off the numbers. Uh, one of the things that's always interesting to watch is, you know, when we have a group that's got a very, very high uh, shared social experience score. And, you know, when you're sh talking that through with the chapter and they, everyone starts clapping and applauding and everyone's so excited about that score. And then you talk through the next slide, which is, you know, the intersection of social status and alcohol use and social experience. And then you, you can kind of watch some head, some, some tone changes of people kind of realizing, oh, maybe like, maybe what we want is not 
for this to purely be a social experience because then there's, you know, we're not getting anything out of it and it's not as positive as of an experience. And just being able to show those, those numbers to students and watch them kind of have that light bulb moment of maybe, maybe this isn't as great as we thought it was, even though it was a high score. Uh, it's, it's, it's cool to watch. I think the other thing that's interesting is when there's a chapter where, you know, you can guess based off of the way people are responding to things. Uh, sometimes you'll have quite a few people talking about, you know, how important the solidarity or, or the, or the support encouragement is to their membership. And you can kind of watch people in the back of the room having these you know, shaking their heads or looking upset about something. And when you kind of ask more probing questions about what's going on in the chapter, you'll learn some people really do feel that. And there's a portion of the chapter that's having a great experience and feels really strongly about the brotherhood or the sisterhood, but that's not everyone. And so when you can kind of have those discussions with the chapter about how, you know, people are having very different experiences within this one group, and we can look at this number that shows that, and talk through how your experience might not be reflective of what everyone else is feeling and how do we kind of back include those people back into the fold and get them more re-engaged in the chapter. I think the other thing that is interesting is when we look at some of the accountability scores and talk that piece of the presentation through with students, one thing that's very interesting to me is you can sometimes tell whether or not a chapter is compartmentalizing accountability and putting it off on you know, the standards chairman or the chapter president, or it's, it's somebody's job to do accountability versus it being a core component of their brotherhood and their sisterhood. That's something that I always enjoy kind of diving into with the chapters is, have we offset this to be just a, a put, put it over here in the corner and one person deals with it? Or is it something that everyone feels comfortable and empowered to address within the chapter? So that that is always a fun one to look at is how accountability is showing up either with everyone or whether or not yeah. it's just isolated to a certain group of people. Yeah. I think maybe the next time we get together, that's what I want to talk about is the connection between belonging and accountability. And in particular that formal versus informal accountability, because that's something that we see a lot. You know, Sarah, the thing that, that I think about a lot with the sororities is almost, almost inevitably every campus not every campus, but 80% of campuses, I don't want to overstate this, but it's, it's important to say you go in and it's that chapter that they're great on paper, right? Like they're top recruiting, they're, you know, socially quote unquote top tier. They have all the, 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 the pretty girls, right? Like it's, they're this great chapter on paper. And then you do the survey and their social stuff is really, really high. Mm -hmm. And their sense of belonging is total crap, right? Like mm -hmm. they have awful relationships with one another. They don't like one another. They're not having a good experience. They're not committed. They don't feel any sense of connection, but they're top tier, right? And, and, and it really is for many of those chapters, those conversations can, can go one of two ways. It can either be this huge breakthrough moment for that chapter yeah. where they realize like, yeah, we've got some issues we mm -hmm. need to address. And they look in the mirror and they, they're willing to address it. That happens probably two thirds of the time. But then a third of the time, it's just like defensiveness, shut it down, yep. question the survey. <laughs> like, you, oh, yeah. You're so 
not accustomed to getting any bad news because according to the traditional metrics, we're this great award-winning chapter that they find a way to rationalize or justify why those scores are so bad, even to the point of attacking the instrument itself. It's fascinating to me when that happens, but there's so many of those chapters out there. Every campus, it seems like, has has at least one of those groups that by all traditional metrics are great chapters that actually have really bad sisterhood. I, I think what's interesting though is a lot of times when you do a, a follow-up call or a meeting with the campus-based professionals, you know, and you'll you'll ask them some questions about things like that. And th- it, they're not surprised at all to learn that. They, you know, yeah. it's, it's not surprising to them when you say, yeah, gosh, you know, so-and-so's, they really don't even seem to like each other. You're like, yeah, that, you know, now that you mention it, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it is, it's, I think the other thing that I see in that same scenario is, not only the attacking of the instrument, but how can we use this as an opportunity to tear down another organization that might have, oh yeah, air quote done better than us? Um, because it, it, you know, that we can't allow that. You know, we can't allow that the other group who we don't perceive as as good as us got quote unquote better scores. Uh, so they'll turn really quickly on another chapter if they feel as though it's going to make them feel or look better in that moment. Yeah, and it's, I, I love those conversations. When I think about all the chapters that I meet with, men's or women's side, my favorite groups to meet with are those that are at the top of the food chain in terms of the social pecking order, right? Because you can really, at least I really enjoy kind of just saying, hey, look, I, I, you all are clearly one of the best groups on this campus, according to anyone that I would walk around and ask, but framing it through the lens of how do we avoid you becoming a victim of your own success? Sure. Right. And, and, and I found that that conversation is just a totally different way to frame that the conversation and to get that chapter thinking about, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, we maybe have people who join us for less than altruistic reasons. We maybe have people who join us who only want to exploit the social benefits associated with being in this top tier group, but who are actually either a not good people or B don't have positive intentions in terms of their reason being here uh, and aren't going to work to contribute to the success of this chapter. And, and that's the beauty. And, and this is what I wanted to talk with you about, Sarah, you and I, obviously <clears throat> Josh has done a little bit of this, but he's more on the research side. You and I more than anyone in, in involved in dyad, have done a lot of these campus conversations where we go in and still take these conversations and, and workshops with chapters. And to me, that's really where the, the rubber meets the road with these conversations. And I love the opportunity that a conversation about brotherhood or sisterhood gives you to talk about other things that students may not otherwise be willing to talk with you about, right? Mm -hmm. So on the fraternity side, it's the, hey, you're top tier, you're trying to protect your social image, you don't wanna just give it away, you've got this earn it mindset, let's talk about how maybe that's having an impact on your chapter. And all of a sudden, the chapters eagerly engage in this conversation about their hazing culture. Whereas if you'd just gone in and said, hey guys, let's talk about hazing, shut down, right? Like everyone looking down, everyone looking around, everyone totally uncomfortable. 
it's like the sneak attack side door conversation about hazing. And it's the same with these sororities about you want to walk in, hey, let's talk about your alcohol culture. Let's talk about your social culture. No one wants to talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that your social metrics are all through the roof. Your social status importance is super high and your belonging is shit. Why is your sisterhood so bad? And again, all of a sudden they're talking about things that you could have never otherwise gotten them to talk about. It's such a powerful avenue to go down in terms of getting students to open up and share and engage in conversations that historically people have had a hard time getting students to engage in. What what has your experience been with that? I think a big piece of it for me has been that it seems as though students haven't had the language that they need in order to talk about some of these things. So to your point about, you know, it's, it's, it's scarier to talk about hazing, but it's, it feels a lot easier to talk about the relationships I have with these people who I live with or am surrounded by. And I think when I've been able to walk chapters through these different schemas, uh, the, on the men's side or the women's side, and then we're opening up the door to a conversation that it can be very validating. Either it's now given me the tools to explain why we are successful because now I have the right words or it's, you know, allows them to reevaluate some of those shortcomings, but through a much different lens, because we're not saying you're bad people or your chapter's horrible or you need to be on probation. And I think that's the beauty of our role is that we're not, you know, I don't work for your campus. I don't work for your headquarters. I'm certainly not there to get you in trouble. Yeah. What I'm here to do is talk through the lens of brotherhood and sisterhood with you. That's way less threatening. And so I think that, you know, an easy example would be, I, I normally I'll ask if I have the opportunity to talk to the chapter leaders before, what are some things that they feel they're struggling with? And you get very generic-y kind of buzzwords often. You know, I'll hear all the time, uh, you know, our seniors are apathetic or, um, you know, the, the new members don't care or they'll just use kind of generic things that I think they hear around campus. And it normally is some kind of blame game. So whatever our problem is in our chapter, it's because of this certain group not doing this certain thing. Um, and you know, we'll walk through the presentation and that same group will sometimes come up afterwards and say, you know, in the case of apathy, oh, you know, maybe they're not apathetic. Maybe they just don't feel like they belong here. And, 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 so, and then they'll immediately get their wheels turning about, you know, what can we do that would allow people to feel like they belong or how can we re-engage with people? And it feels as though these terms that we use have a much easier solution than some of these very, very <laughs> difficult problems that people feel like they have to address. I think it feels a lot easier to say, how can we make sure our new members feel like they belong here than it does to say, how, how do we, you know, per, how do we fix apathy? Cause that's kind of vague and nebulous. And so apathy think- is a symptom, right? It's not a yeah. disease. Let's focus on the core issue. It really helps you focus down on what's really going on and what really matters. Yeah, and so I think that's been the the best part about this is giving proper tools and proper language that to solve problems at a much lower level. Uh, you know, it's 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 very difficult to solve a, a hazing problem in a one hour presentation, but it is a lot easier to have conversations about how do you hold each other to a higher standard, or how do you take care of one another, or how do you look out for people who are going through a tough time. Um, and so I think that we're just able to approach things in a much different way through these presentations that feel for chapters a lot, a lot less threatening. 
for sure. So I, I want to close with a thought and Josh and Sarah want both of your responses to this as we kind of think through the, the broader ripple effect of some of this, you know, Josh mentioned that when we began this research, we really were at the height of the fraternal values movement. Right. And, and, and I think even before we started the research and found some of the things that Josh and I referenced earlier, Josh and I were probably fairly critical of the fraternal values movement generally or early on. You know, Josh wrote a piece in perspectives. I had a blog post, I think titled the, I, I hereby proclaim the death of the, the values movement. And Dan Bureau and I did a session at AFA that became, I think an essentials or a perspectives article where I was pretty critical. Uh, and, and our research I think has really helped move the ball down the field with regards to that. You know, and at the risk of sounding cliche, I, I think, you know, the research that we've done has really been kind of a game changer in that you go to AFA or AFLV now, you hang around folks in the industry, people aren't talking about fraternal values the way they are now, the way they were six or seven years ago, right? You, you show up and people are talking about brotherhood and sisterhood and belonging and, and, and authenticity and all these things that are connected to our research. And I don't, I don't take sole credit for that. We're definitely not the only people who have studied belonging, but I too, I do take some credit for that, right? That, that we really did kind of reframe the way we have these conversations and, 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 and all the evidence that I've seen suggests that having those conversations about brotherhood and sisterhood are much more impactful than, you know, pounding your chest and imploring students to live their values, right? Which is where this industry was, 10 years ago. Josh, start with you. Why do you feel like these conversations around brotherhood and sisterhood are so much better when, when it comes to actually impacting and addressing student behavior than this notion of, of values congruence? Let's kind of circle it back around to, to where this conversation sure. began. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, uh, a look at some of the development, you know, the development theorists, student development theorists, you know, immediately Baxter Magolda comes yeah. to mind. You talk about people may not even develop their or crystallize their value set until they're in the thirties. So we're asking 18 to 24 year olds to fully kind of understand what these values are and make judgments about, you know, prioritizing one over another when, you know, it'll be, it'll be probably for many years beyond their college experience before they really determine what, what are my core values, which ones am I willing to negotiate with and which ones are, are kind of rock solid. So a, I think we're just living in this flux space and trying to, you know, and, and then banging our heads against the wall when it's like, well, why don't, why don't they get prioritizing honesty over loyalty, right? Which is a, a totally difficult thing to have to try to wrestle with, two very good values, loyalty and honesty, but they will conflict with each other at times. And, and you know, one of them ends up winning. And how do you navigate that 18 to 24 years old? I mean, you're, it's, a, it's still just far too developmental. And I think you look at something like brotherhood and sisterhood, and it, it, to me, that's just more concrete. Uh, it's easier to map, as I was mentioning earlier, activities and what we're doing to to how we experience this aspect of brotherhood or sisterhood and and to me it's just like have a more concrete conversation with them so that uh the member right the the fraternity or sorority member can begin to connect dots between doing certain things and adjusting the type of culture uh that we're that we're promoting and the type of person that i want to be um 
so I think that I think that that's you know that's one thing. I think um, another thing could be <laughs> values can be defined in nebulous terms. You know how how you might define or demonstrate honesty, loyalty. Uh, truth, faith, integrity might be different than how I present and define them. So like, how do we negotiate that? Where is the common definition by which we all should then decide, okay, this is how integrity should be defined. So if I want to espouse the value of integrity, I need to do it specifically this way. I mean, again, that's some super high level kind of stuff. It just, <laughs> it's not built into what we're doing. It's not built into our education programs. And I'm not saying that it should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying like, if we want to move needles, we got to start by meeting some folks where they are and giving them some tangible roadmap to get to a better place. And, and that's where I think less nebulousness and more concreteness through the lens of brotherhood and sisterhood just becomes far more valuable. And maybe the, you know, uh, when we think about it, that specifically that concreteness, right? Like these are more concrete concepts, supporting one another, building some sense of unity and togetherness through thick and thin, uh, creating and maintaining some deep, meaningful relationships where you know a lot about people's desires and fears and hopes and dreams, right? Like demonstrating that you can hold folks accountable and you can hold yourself accountable through some tough conversations and some, you know, informal and formal type mechanisms, um, planning and executing fun and hopefully safe experiences. I mean, those are things that are written like student learning or student development outcomes. And those things to me attach themselves very nicely to schemas of brotherhood and sisterhood that are not as easy to do with things like values. But I would finally say it's probably also um, the, the, the case that you could align some values to schemas of brotherhood and sisterhood, right? So um, if you think about those programs and activities and experiences, um, you know, look, solidarity uh, focusing on solidarity or support and encouragement related beliefs will probably develop things like loyalty and commitment. Um, focusing on social experience and having fun and safe experiences may well um, make deposits into the, the values articulation of things like faith, you know, if you're, if you're experiencing religious things together, right, or Bible studies, etc. Civic mindedness, doing service together, uh, leadership development. Leadership is a social engagement by itself. So, you know, accountability is probably highly related to responsibility and honesty and integrity. You know, belonging is probably related to things like love and compassion and maybe things like authenticity. So I think that you can still believe that values matter. And that they can be in the experience, but there's a step between that. And I think you get to those values by focusing on the dimensions of brotherhood and sisterhood, the more concrete things. You know, Josh, as you were talking, I remember one of my critiques of the whole values congruence idea. You referenced Baxter Magolda, you know, student development 101. Let's go back and refresh ourselves. The whole theory of self-authorship is that you shed these external formulas, right? That you, you become your own person, you become self-authored. And instead of doing what other people think you ought to do, you become the person that you want to be. And what we were doing in the, in the values congruence movement by saying, live your values is to say, no, your personal values are no good. We want to replace those external formulas with these other external formulas. We want you to take the organization's values and make those your personal values we weren't encouraging them to 
through the lens of an experience of brotherhood or sisterhood to explore and develop their own values. We were just saying, no, 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 your values are bad. You should take these other values and overlay them over your own values. And this is the things that you should care about. And it just, no shocker, wasn't really landing. It wasn't really working with students. We've almost killed it off in fraternity world, but Sarah and sorority world, there's this one last vestige of the values movement that's still hanging out there, values-based recruitment, and, and, and we need to crush it. Let's think about this concept for just a second and how ridiculous it is. We, we've got all these Greek advisors out there telling sorority chapters to recruit based on your values. So you see these sorority chapter recruitment chairs standing up in front of P&Ms, reciting off and telling them about their values. The problem and the challenge is this, if you did a Venn diagram of every NPC group's stated values, the overlap would be somewhere between 90 and 95%. They all stand for the same shit. So I'm this 18-year-old potential new member. I'm going through the recruitment process, and I'm trying to decipher between these groups that are all selling me all the same values. And instead of just trying to get to know me as a person, they're trying to sell me on these values all of which are the same. It's absolutely ridiculous that we're still trying to force this square peg in a round hole and get sorority chapters to sell their values when all of the evidence that we've gathered and that others have gathered suggests that the problem with the recruitment process is not the lack of values, it's the lack of the opportunity to build meaningful relationships. Uh, how are we framing this conversation in a way that students can really understand on the sorority side, especially because we know through our qualitative research that so much of that sisterhood in the good chapters begins building through the recruitment process. How do we need to change that conversation with our Panhellenic groups about the way we recruit? I think a, a big starting point, you know, one thing that I do at Butler is even when I'm talking to recruitment chairs or our VP recruitment and someone says, you know, uh, I, know, I know we have to do values-based recruitment, so, and then they'll go off on some tangent. that doesn't. <laughs> Literally, they've been brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll stop, and I ask two questions. One, when you say you know you need to do this, how tell do me you know how that? you know that to be true. <laughs> and then two, can you define for me, in a sentence or two, what values-based recruitment means? And so that then then the wheels already fall off the wagon and so then I'll uh, you know I'll follow up and say okay well tell me how you go about doing that so how, how do you even do that to begin with and what I've learned is they are just saying <laughs> regurgitating information that has been told to them of this is what we're supposed to do and this is how we have to recruit uh, and I think the biggest thing that needs to happen to even start shifting any of this is we need to grant them the permission to, to do something a little bit different. And right now they just don't feel as though they're empowered or allowed or able to do anything different. Um, so I think just the, the simple questions of like, who is making you do this? <laughs> do you want to do that? Or would you like to do something different? And, and explaining to them that you're not going to get in trouble <laughs> if you don't do this as a part of your recruitment process. You, you know, you're going to end up with a, a not great process that people don't want to be a part of that everyone feels like is just, you know, very formulaic and boring and annoying. This is your process. You're in charge. Run your recruitment the way you want to run it. And all you need to do is just allow people to talk about things and get to know each other. We've put so much stress and pressure on the process and there's so many, you know, 
the fear of breaking a rule or the fear of, you know, dirty rushing or heaven forbid, I take a napkin through the threshold. Like it's, it's just getting so complicated that if we were to just allow them to take a step back and just start over. <laughs> and even if they just knew that they could change certain things about the process, I think it would be a world of difference. Awesome. Josh, Sarah, we could go on for hours as we sometimes often do when we're together. Uh, we're, uh, we're at the end of our show today. Uh, appreciate you all coming on. Uh, let's say, let's do this again in a couple months. All right. Yeah, sounds great. All right. Thanks for coming on and we'll chat soon. You all stay safe. Thanks buddy. Take care. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Josh and Sarah. I know I did. It's great to hear the context of how Dyad came to be, but more importantly, the work that went into the research that we do. And in particular, it's exciting to think through and talk about how this work really is making a difference in terms of an entry point into having some of these difficult conversations with fraternity and sorority members. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information about Dyad Strategies, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.